in five, four, three, two, one. Down, 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 That's the theme song. Okay. <laughs> Here we go. Welcome to Objection to the Rule, live on Radio Free Brooklyn. I am your host today. My name is Teresa, and I'm here with my two co-hosts, Matt and Jasmine. How are you guys doing? Good. It's, it's, hey. just, it's just us three. The, the, the balance. We, we all, because the show we do three different segments, local, national, and global, we're like, we're like representatives of, of these three different um uh, what would you call it? <laughs> sectors, I guess. Sectors of news. Yes. <laughs> well, I actually have the good news. I have a little good news story as well today. So everybody needs good news sometime. That's good. All right. So let's get right to it. Who is on? Oh, Matt, you're on local news this week, correct? Yes, I am. I am local. I am. Awesome. The- <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's like I, I'm, I'm the cell of the body right now. And then who's doing national? Uh, I have a national story. So uh, Jasmine is like the appendage, and then Teresa as you're like the body <laughs> of the world. Oh wow, that's a lot of pressure. <laughs> yeah, I don't, I don't even know. Like, I, I feel like we each have freestanding things that would work on their own, but we're push pushing them together. Exactly. Hey, whatever. Teamwork makes the dreams work, right? That, that thank you, Teresa. <laughs> I'm glad you don't hate my stupid analogy. Oh no, it's fine. It's fine. It's all good. Teamwork makes the dream work. That that's a double rhyme, isn't it? Yeah, it was hard to say too. I thought I was gonna like screw it up. Man, my, my friend told me he was like Biggie Smalls is the best rapper, and I was like, why? And he was like, he says, I'm in the limelight because I rhyme tight, and I was like, oh, double rhyme. <laughs> Right. I'm sure we can find lots of those. (laughs) Just that one line is why he's the best. Okay. So local, right? All right. Um, In the lead up to New York's Democratic primary, we had three episodes where we highlighted Emily Gallagher's state assembly race and other, uh, other races like the quiet but important district leader races for the Democratic Party in New York State. How did those races turn out? Well, we don't know. <laughs> we don't know if she unseated the long-serving Joe Lentil. We don't know most of the results of the Democratic primary, even though it has been three weeks since the election. And the ballots are still being counted. New York Times writes... Oh. Yeah, it's getting there. Uh, quote, the absentee ballot count... Greatly inflated this year after the state expanded the vote-by-mail option because of the coronavirus pandemic has been painstakingly slow and hard to track with no running account of the vote totals available, end quote. We all knew there would be more absentee ballots this year, but the amount more is staggering. Again, the New York Times, quote, in New York City, 403,203 ballots were mailed for the June primary. As a comparison, just 76,258 absentee and military ballots were counted in the 2008 general election. That is over, end quote, that is over 300,000 more. But it's not just the number of ballots that explains why the state has had such a hard time counting them. One major problem 
was that the state guaranteed that the votes would be counted if they were postmarked by the day of the election. Unfortunately, the prepaid return envelopes that the ballots were mailed in are not necessarily postmarked by the post office. You know, there's the ones that say, like, you know, no postage um, required. So sometimes the post people just, like, you know, go on through. You're fine. And so that means that if your ballot took too long to get to the Board of Elections by no fault of your own, just because the post office was slow, it could go uncounted. To remedy this, Cuomo could issue an executive order to count all the ballots that came up to a certain date and disregard that uh, previous rule, but he hasn't done that yet. Some say that's because it would benefit uh, his party, or not his party, his um, wing of the Democratic Party. Um, who knows? He hasn't made a clear statement on why not, why he hasn't done that yet. This and other complications may result in one in five of these ballots not being counted. Other reasons for votes to go uncounted are if the ballot took too long in the mail, if someone didn't date uh, next to their signature, or if the ballot didn't even make it to the voter's mailbox on time in the first place, which there have been many cases of that happening. This is a problem this is a problem in a democratic state that is trying to do things correctly. What about the states that aren't? Going into what many people are calling the most important election in recent history, it's quite scary thinking that this round of disenfranchisement may not be voter ID laws or gerrymandering, but simply poor planning for a very difficult thing to do, which is mass vote by mail. Emily Baslin, a writer... Uh, uh, a journalist wrote in a New York Times, <clears throat> another New York Times piece wrote, quote, to fundamentally change the way voting has been done in those states, and, uh, they would have to move quickly to sign contracts with the vendors and then order supplies like specialty certifi certified paper for envelopes and ballots, high speed scanners to count votes and secure drop off boxes. If they wait, the state she's talking about, they'll risk running into shortages. In Wisconsin in April, when voting by mail rose to more than 70%, totaling over a million, many people didn't get to vote because counties ran out of envelopes for a time and then, and then couldn't fill all the application for absentee ballots fast enough, end quote. Which means voting by mail is going to quite difficult to do, so that means at the very least, on election night, we're not going to instantly have a good idea of who's winning, and that's if we happen to overhaul the systems to expand vote by mail, get all this new equipment, and do everything else during a pandemic with a political party, the Republicans, that are very, aren't incredibly enthusiastic to expanding vote by mail. So, yeah. I'm not feeling too great about this. What about you all? Talk about voter suppression. Oh my gosh, guys. This is, and I knew this shit was going to happen. I'm saying that because when I went to go vote in the primaries, I think I told you guys this, or I don't know if I did or not, but I literally was standing in the facility for about 45 minutes because the sh machines that they had to collect the ballots were jammed. 
there were so many ballots stacked inside of them that they wouldn't accept new ones. So there were representatives like opening up the boxes, trying to like put them back in there properly just so they would scan. And, you know, if I wasn't as concerned about my vote being counted, I probably would have just left. Like, I'm in here in a mask. I don't know how clean it is. I had to wait 45 minutes just to scan it. They offered me to leave my ballot for someone else to do it. But I was like, no, let me just sit here and see what happens. And that's like right here in Brooklyn. Like, I think sometimes when we think about voter suppression, we think about these like small states or in the big states, but you know, in a different part of the country. But this is happening like right here in our backyard. So I'm not surprised at all. And I love the fact that this is not in the news. I haven't seen any stories about the outcomes of the election since the day after. Have you? <laughs> like, why don't we know this? <laughs> yeah, I, I haven't. I don't watch or consume like traditional media that much, like, because I don't um, watch television, but. You mostly, it's like you have to be following certain people online on social media or follow specific publications that make it a point to bring these things up. But I don't know if like you're just watching what's reported on television if they even do bring this stuff up. But I have been seeing a lot about how much danger the USPS is, the United States Postal Service. And mm -hmm. that's what this made me think of, like the fact that that is on such dangerous ground is really scary to me, like just in general, but specifically when you're talking about people trying to exercise their right to vote in a pandemic, you know, like it's extremely important for ballots to get to people on time, for people's votes to be counted. But if you're destroying the organization that's responsible for, for doing those deliveries, like how is that gonna work? Hmm. Yeah, it's it's the whole philosophy of voting is is a weird one. I think like some people think that politics and voting in general it should be difficult. Um, and I'm not just talking about voting, but also just kind of like these smaller things, like these democratic primaries. They're so kind of like insidery and cutthroat because not a lot of people participate in them. And I think some people just kind of think like that's the price of admission is like if you're able to like you know put up with all of these like small little things then you have the right to represent uh your community <laughs> or something but wait have you have you talked to people who say that or like where is that just like your impression because of how things are that's my impression from from going through this last set of primaries, talking with Lacey Tauber, who was on the show, uh, talking with some of the other people in New Kings Democrats, it's just like it's, it's such a teeny world, and everyone's pretty well-meaning, but it's just like such a small club that's really hard to get into and understand because a lot of it has to do with uh, the the legal system. Like right now, they're suing, uh, I think, New Kings Democrats, but I'm not sure, but one part of the Democratic Party is suing the larger party to make them count these votes that are being uh, thrown out because of uh, a missed signature or a misplaced signature or it came too late or whatever. And like getting through all of that kind of gross <laughs> legal technical stuff um I, I just think it like really turns people off and the only people that are going to be able to do that are people like with the the time and interest to like uh 
you know, get uh, embedded in that world. That's so true. Like there, there, there is like a, a sort of elitism that goes into certain things. Like I've definitely heard people in casual conversation make comments like, "You have, you should have an have to pass like an IQ test to vote and things like that." And like they think that they're being clever, but it's that's a very fucked up thing to suggest. And I do believe that the system is as opaque as it is like by design. Like I think there's a there's a reason why in public schools, at least from my experience, there's not a really robust program to teach people about like every level of what's going on in your community as far as who's in charge and who does what. It's like you have to be self-motivated to go find that yourself. So I do definitely see where you're coming from, that there's some people who feel like that's how it should be. But, I, you know, it, it's true. Like, you just end up making it so only people that are super invested and really believe that it's going to matter in the end are going to put in the time and the effort to do that. And that, to me, that's backwards, you well, know? Like, why don't we have... It's you. Some people have to like leave their job, or like you're waiting in long lines to vote, or like they close polling places. You got to travel far to get to one. Like, that's not reasonable. Yeah, I feel like it was like that by design. You know, like the whole concept of voting, especially with uh, with black people and women. You know, the delay in us to participate in elections and all of the things that they made them go through, passing these different citizenship tests and all of these times where they did everything they could and they, yeah, all of those different things that they've done um, to kind of just make it hard to reach for us. I feel like it was by design that way. It was a way to keep power where power's at. And now, you know, that over the years, it has deterred people from participating um, and really made a joke out of this political system that we fought so hard to be a part of. It's, It's unnerving. So, and then now, you know, with the whole, are we mailing in ballots? I think I never elected to do absentee, even when I first moved to New York from Ohio, because I just felt like my vote was going to get lost in the mail somewhere. Like there's something very literal about watching it get scanned into the machine and walking away saying your ballot was accepted, that I don't get that same assurance from just like mailing something in. And because there's no track, like, do you have to FedEx your ballot to ensure that it gets delivered. Like there, it's just like this huge um, systematic, almost like imposition that voting is hard for you. Voting is going to frustrate you and it's kind of a waste of time. Like they paint it as this thing instead of it being, you know, something that's required. Like why is it election day like a holiday? <laughs> I don't know, like, shouldn't that be a national holiday? We take holidays for all of these you know, dead people. And I'm not, you know, trying to talk bad about people that we celebrate through holidays. I'm just saying when it comes to a national day of awareness, election day should be up there on the list. Yeah. Um, uh, shoot. Oh, that, that's such a good point. You, I, I was going to respond to something earlier. Um, I'm sorry, Matt. I just had to get it out. But, but no, just like the election day as a holiday, it's just like, I think, I, yeah, I mean, to have holidays designed around doing something, doing something important, like as much as I love all these people that we venerate by like taking the day off of work, like I'd much rather have more holidays where, you know, we celebrate doing great stuff. Um, 
but uh, God, earlier I was looking at um, voter participation and just to see what, because I always heard that it was pretty low here. And we're still at under 50% of citizens that can vote do vote. And that's it in presidential elections. So like the, the biggest like voting thing is, is still half. And it was, it's been going up ever since the nation was founded. But when it started, it was like couple percent 10 percent you know it was really low then women got the vote and it jumped up uh as you know (laughs) double the amount of people that can vote but like our nation has never been this everyone should vote nation because if it was people would have been voting um obviously large part of the the nation couldn't vote because of white supremacy but still, this idea of it as being like a founding, like people waxing ph- philosophically about how wonderful voting is, is like I don't think like this ever. This is what where we could. This is who we could become, but this isn't what we have been. Yeah, it's it's like what me and Teresa were saying. It is definitely by design, and it's from the origin of like what we now call the United States. Like uh, originally, you had to be white male and a a landowner i believe so not even just a man not even just white you had to belong to a certain class and we see vestiges of that still now you know like you have people that are super invested in making sure that you know their school district looks a certain way and they want to keep it that way and those are the people that will make sure like make for damn sure that they are going to vote and they have confidence that their vote is going to count and then you have people that have been historically disenfranchised that have all these roadblocks put in front of them deliberately like they just um struck down in florida they were trying to fight to say that if you were a convicted felon in the past but like you've already been to jail and everything like they're trying to make it so like you still have to pay some amount of money before you can vote you know what type of scam is that you know how is that different from like more than 100 years ago when you had to pay a poll tax and they knew that majority black and brown people are too poor to do that you know not a whole lot has changed so i wish there's a lot of shaming that people do around voting and i just i really think that it's misguided because the focus should be on making these things accessible if you believe that they're important like fight for that instead of kind of like punching down at people that are already struggling to do it even if they do think it's important yeah um you can go to what's it called power to the polls uh i was watching the daily show and and they pointed out that a lot of the older folks that we rely on to run this type of stuff uh aren't going to be as involved this year uh, for obvious health reasons. Um, it's pretty easy to sign up. You just get put on a mailing list, I think, so that when uh, different districts are looking for people to staff, uh, you you can go help. I think it's power to the polls, but just type it in if anyone's curious about volunteering. Is that how it works? Because I went, I went to the Board of Election website the other day to sign up to work the polls, and I had malfunction with the link. Like, I couldn't even get to the sign-on page for it. I tried it like two or three different times and Mm. I was like, wow. Yeah, like, yes, to be a poll worker because after I experienced that, I realized, you know, I want to fight voter suppression, like for real, like my my vote is being suppressed. So the the best way to do it is to work the polls because normally the the people, (laughs) I'm just saying, the people who are at the polls are normally elderly, 
you know, they've been they've been there all day. They're people who can take off of work and things like that. But you don't see a lot of young people running the polls. I feel like if there was a push to get young people to do this, and you can pay for it, but that's not why I was signing up. I'm just like, why haven't I done that? You know, I'm like in my 30s and I've never actually worked the polls before. It's like, why not just go and get the experience so that I can, you know, authenticate my message even more and figure out these inner workings to see how I can influence that in my particular bowling site, you know, in my particular site. Because what I witnessed was people who were getting frustrated, you know, older people that are running these tables and putting themselves out there when I'm like, you know what, I can do this. I can take off a day of work and come here and do this to ensure that I'm, I'm making the biggest impact, you know, that I can. But um, yeah, I mean, I'll check that site out, Matt, that you're looking at, but just, you know, sidebar. Yeah, it's, it's, I was on the Board of Elections website the other day. And I couldn't, I couldn't get in. I, I just thought it was insane. Yeah, that's that's wonderful, Teresa. Um, it, it's powerthepolls.org, and it's an outside thing that uh, coordinates with the election. So let's hope that okay. they got it all working by the time I get an email. Awesome, awesome. That was a great story. Any final thoughts before we uh, take our first music break? Um, what do we got? Has anyone picked music? Yeah, I got something for us. Oh, yeah. All right, cool. So I guess we get right in it. Our first track today is from Jaded Kiss featuring Anthony Hamilton. It's called Why. We'll be right back. Survive. I'm so glad. As it relates to. Across America. Survive to now get on. Is that real? Yo, why is Jada Kiss as hard as it gets? Why is the industry designed to keep the artists in debt? And why them dudes ain't riding if they party your set? And why they never get it popping but they party to death? Yeah, and why they gonna give you life for a murder? Turn around, only give you eight months for a burner. It's going down. Why they selling people CDs for under a dime? And if it's all love, daddy, why you come with your nine? Why my homies ain't get that cake? Why is a brother up north better than Jordan that ain't get that break? Why you ain't stacking? Instead of trying to be fly, why is ratting at an all time high? Why are you even alive? Why they kill Tupac and Chris? Why at the bar you don't take straight shots instead of popping Chris? Why them bullets have to hit that door? Why did Kobe have to hit that raw? Why he kissed that raw? Why? Welcome back to Objection to the Rule, live on Radio Free Brooklyn. And up next, we have Jasmine with our national news segment. Okay, so hi, I'm Jasmine, like Teresa said. And this is a... I picked it as a national story because it's not happening just in New York City, um, and it's a topic that we've talked about in other parts of the country. Uh, So this information is from an article written by Emma Ackerman for Vice News. The article title is Homeless People Are Moving Into Vacant Homes and Owner Wants Them Out. So it's been a few months since we had a segment about Moms for Housing out in Oakland and their movement to push for housing as a human right and fight against gentrification. Um, I believe it was just last week I talked about... um, equality for Flatbush in Brooklyn, who's fighting against those same issues. 
And this story is about something that's going down right now in Philadelphia. So Jay, who's a 29-year-old mother of three, has painted, put down carpet, and installed new appliances in an abandoned five-bedroom house for her and her husband and children to all live in. Around the time that Philadelphia issued the stay-at-home order because of COVID in March, Philadelphia activists, without publicizing it, they moved about 40 homeless people, including Jay and her family, into 10 vacant homes that are vacant properties owned by the Philadelphia Housing Authority. The activists that were doing this work for Occupy PHA, or Occupy Philadelphia Housing Authority, the Workers' Revolutionary Collective, and the Black and Brown Workers' Cooperative. And they are arguing that the housing authority is selling the properties, but it's also letting viable houses decay while families are waiting on a waiting list for affordable housing. They are making the demands that the Philly Housing Authority and other agencies should transfer ownership of the vacant properties to a community land trust, which is also what Moms for Housing was fighting for. So that way the homes would be set aside for permanent low-income housing. And they also want homeless people like Jay and her family to be able to keep living in the properties they've been squatting in for the past uh, four months. So Jay didn't know when she first became homeless this winter, she didn't really have a place to go. Her landlord moved her, her husband, and her children out because he was selling the place and she couldn't afford to find another place to live. Her and her husband had work, but they ran out of most of their savings getting ready for to take care of their newborn. Jay had been waiting on a list for housing with multiple agencies, including the PHA, for many years, but she was just in a position where she couldn't wait anymore. She has an immune deficiency, which makes her especially at risk for COVID, and she had been living between her car and a hotel room for months while the pandemic was raging. The vacant home that her and her family have moved into and that she's fixed up has given her a place to quarantine. There's about 5,700 people who live in shelters or on the street in Philadelphia, including Jay and also another person moved into a vacant home named Christina Berry, who's a 45-year-old single mother. Like Jay, she also says that she exhausted her options before she wound up at the Philadelphia Housing Authority home. So Philadelphia activists first started this campaign of squatting in late March, but they didn't announce it. They didn't want to put um, the homeless individuals at risk of being evicted. They also still will not disclose the addresses of the houses that are being occupied because they don't want the PHA to get the police force involved. Nicole Tillman, who's a spokesperson for the PHA, said that occupations aren't the, quote, right way to go about addressing the city's affordable housing crisis. She claims that um, taking over the homes isn't fair to the 40,000 people currently waiting for a place to live after going through the agency's legal process. The agency, she says, is also working with local legal aid to relocate the illegal occupants to appropriate housing. The activists have also done more than just taking over the vacant homes. 
These actions are also connected to two encampments in Philly where homeless people are rallying around demands for housing. One of the encampments is along Benjamin Franklin Parkway, where there's about 140 homeless people. And the other encampment is a splinter off of that group, and it's outside the Philadelphia Housing Authority's headquarters. And there's about 20 to 25 people there. Um, if you're interested in seeing what the demands are by these activist groups, you can visit philadelphiahousingaction.info slash 2020. Hmm. That's, um, thank you. Thank you for that story. Um, squatting and how we think of homes is, is very aggravating. I, I, in America, we're often are called, referred to as like a wasteful country. Um, and, and I think that's fair. <laughs> I have multiple coworkers that will have like the air conditioning on while the window is is open and but then i think i think the greatest sign of our um uh, gratuitous <laughs> waste is is the fact that we have enough housing um there, there are so many open places um that just aren't occupied either to do with speculation or just people live in giant houses by themselves you know yeah, well, Jasmine, I think that you made a really good point. Like the systems that are in place are not working. I think oh, we're yeah. seeing that um, in a lot of different places in our society right now. But specifically, uh, there there will be a rise of homelessness. You know, I have a lot of students who actually um, are dropping out of school right now because they're being coming. Um, their housing is being jeopardized, and they're going into the shelters with their entire families. Um, due to different things, you know, around COVID, losing jobs, things of that nature. So, you know, while I appreciate this group that is is fighting to help this this um, this family and many others like it, I know immigrants who moved here when I was young in Ohio, really close friend of mine. Um, her mother lived in a school. She squatted in the house for almost like four years before they found out. And by the time that they found out, she hadn't saved enough money to buy the house. <laughs> Isn't that a crazy story? No, that's uh, she, a story. Yeah, they were from Poland. And I never knew that they were doing that until we were adults. And her mother was telling us that she was selling the house. And um, they shared with me the story of how they had a boyfriend. She had a, The mother had a boyfriend who knew the area. And when she moved here, she kind of just got to America with her daughter. And he knew of this house that his friend had just moved out. It was vacant for a really long time. Nobody had came to see about it and they worked on it together and moved in there. Um, but that's, I mean, that's a story that I feel like happens more than we know, mm. you know, like that, you know, why wouldn't you, if you were in that situation, you would do the best that you can to be out of that, yeah, off the streets, out of, you know, um, a place where it may be a lot of people with COVID where it's not safe, especially if you have children, you know, you're going to take it into your own hands at some point, like, these systems just aren't designed for the level um, of people who need them. Or are they designed for that? Oh, well, that, yeah, I guess Housing I said that the wrong way. You know? It's yeah. really, you know, it's, but when you're hearing these numbers, like there's 
It's just, when I got to the part where the spokesperson is like, but what about the 40,000 people who are waiting in the list? This is unfair <laughs> to them. I'm like, this is not the gotcha that you think it is. Because you sound like, okay, so there's thousands of thousands of people that are waiting and they do not have adequate housing right now. And that is your argument against people actually taking real concrete action to secure a safe place to stay for themselves. You know, it's like you're defending the indefensible, you know, and you, I don't know of that many groups in New York that are doing the same thing as far as taking over houses, but that's probably, you know, for the best. Like, if you publicize, I think, too much where exactly certain things are happening and you do draw attention... It's almost like, Teresa, you're describing uh, your friend back in Ohio. It's like it took four years for them to even know that she had been doing this. So clearly it wasn't like it was dangerous or it was causing a problem. It's just that yeah. you're aware that someone is getting something that you don't think they should have access to. And now you're starting off this mechanism to remove them violently and put them back into an unsafe situation. You know, like it's not really about what's right or about what's safe. It's just about, like, no one can have what they need for free. You know, it's like you have to be struggling or, like, you're supposed to be struggling because you didn't follow some arbitrary rule. Yeah. That's that's awful, man. I mean, breath is not even free. <laughs> you know? It's, when you really think about it, it's like, um, where is the humanity in any... I don't know. Every time we uncover these stories, I just start to think about how sometimes we live in such a fallacy, you know, with these systems that are in place. It's like, oh, democracy helps people and all these different organizations are out here trying to do things for people and help them out. Well, there wouldn't be a need for all of this if the system actually functioned the way they say it is supposed to or, you know what I mean? Like, it's, it's really unfortunate that so many people are going through these crises like this. This could be any of us at any moment. Yeah. And it's the scarcity of housing is not a necessary scarcity. This isn't, this isn't something. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's a good point. Yeah. Remember the whole, um, the, the founding fathers based life, liberty and pursuit of happiness after John Locke's philosophical statement about, uh, people deserve, was it life? freedom and property because <laughs> he, he was like property is super important people need to be able to exist you know in in space uh and the founding fathers had a little, a little bit of foresight of like you know if we guarantee this that that i mean I, but out of all the countries in the world the states is kind of the only one that would have been able to do that um like, even if we wouldn't have enacted uh, genocide against the native people, there's this still like we're the one place where there actually was room enough for us all, and we, we couldn't get even get that right. Ay, ay, ay. Yeah, I think it's like people really have the mindset that you know, like if, if you're poor, if you're black and poor, like if you're a part of certain groups that it's taken for granted that it's normal for you not to have a place to be like you don't deserve to exist in public space unless like you're following unless you fit a certain view 
I mean, there's a, a black woman right now on Long Island, I think in Valley Stream is the name of the town. And she, you know, like you're talking about, well, there's a right way to do things. She did do the right way. She purchased the house in a neighborhood she wanted to be in. And she has people consistently threatening her, throwing feces in her yard, peace agencies refusing to pick up her garbage to make a statement that she's not wanted there. You know, it's like, there's always a way to say that the rules are one thing, but then as soon as you see someone you don't want to benefit or they find a way and they make a way for themselves, all of a sudden it's like you got to turn it on its head and find a way to exclude them. Yeah, that, that is a phrase you hear all the time. Like, uh, you know, I worked hard. I played by the rules. I'm not sure if it's in popular culture or if it's just something I've heard people say. Is is that is that a refrain you both uh, grew up hearing? What or is, is that it? Just like a white thing where like all say it say it again. I, I, I like that. You know, I worked hard all my life for what I have. Like it's like pulling yourself oh. up for, by your bootstraps. Talk. Yeah, like I played by the rules is something in particular I heard, and it's just like I, you know. <laughs> Yeah, well, the rules were made to to play for you. The rules weren't made for everybody, you know. Right. It's like I it, I recognize that type of talk as a racist dog whistle, whenever I hear it, because it's the system is extremely rigged. Like you hear it come up a lot with immigration about my family came here the right way, and they're talking about a period in history when there was no. Like, there was completely open, like, you get to just arrive and we're not going to run you through the ringer because they wanted, like, low-income, like, low-cost labor and stuff like that. Or they're ignoring the fact that there were particular rules that said we will accept immigrants from this part of the world, but not from this part of the world. So you're talking about following a rule that's, like Teresa said, it was biased in the first place, you know, or like people who are, they're immigrants and that they're from another country, but they're here because there's an agreement to have people with a certain skill set, which also is going to mean like you probably already come from a certain class and a certain socioeconomic background. Of course, there's going to be a difference in how the country receives you versus someone who's like a poor migrant or someone who is escaping extreme violence that might not be from that type of class, you know? So it's not, yeah, that type of talk, I'm familiar with it and it makes me sick. <laughs> it's, a lot, it's a lot of bullshit. Yeah, I agree. All right, guys, we're going to stop for a music break before we get into our last two stories. The next song is Red Clay by Freddie Hubbard. We'll be right back.
Welcome back to Objection to the Rule, live on Radio Free Brooklyn. Again, that was Red Clay by Freddie Hubbard. And I am on deck for the world news today. So this story I'm calling Livestock for Ammunition. And I got this research from an article on BBC.com and AlJazeera.com. So authorities in Nigeria's northwest state of Zamfara have offered two cows for each gun surrendered to halt bloody attacks by criminal gangs, including cattle rustlers. Remote communities across the region have for years been hit hard by daily raids from an armed group of motorcycle riding cattle rustlers and kidnappers. Military operations have failed to end the killings and local officials have repeatedly tried negotiations to broker peace. Governor Bello Matawale spoke on Thursday about how the offer of livestock was meant to convince the gangs, known as the bandits, that's quoted, to disarm without cash payments that could be used to buy more guns. He stated, these bandits who choose to repent initially sold their cows to buy guns and now they want a life free of criminality. We are asking them to bring us an AK-47 and get two cows in return. This will empower and encourage them. The attackers who operate out of an abandoned forest reserve, also known as the ransacking communities in nearby states, um, they have often been known to loot shops, steal cattle and grain and take people hostage for ransom. The attacks are rooted in decade-long competitions over resources between ethnic Fulani herders and farming communities. Cows are valued by the Fulani herder community who have been accused of being behind the wave of attacks. An average cow in northern Nigeria costs about 100,000 naira, which is equivalent to $262, while an AK-47 on the black market could cost as much as 500,000 naira, which is equivalent to $1,341, as reported by BBC's Mansour Abubakar. There is no indication if the plan would be enough to convince them to forsake their lucrative cattle wrestling and kidnapping rackets. However, the governor also promised to disband the camps in the forest where the gunmen are based. So that's the story, guys. Um, I think it's quite interesting that uh, this governor is saying that they sold their cows to buy the guns. Now they want to buy the guns back and give them the cows. I, I don't know if he's being... I don't know, that sounded really silly to me. Obviously, there's a lot of inequality in this community um, and competition between um, you know, the different um, communities there and the cows are valued and could produce a better life. But I'm sure that's not the only reason that they well, are doing this. I was, I'm a little confused. So they've been stealing cattle, right? Like that's- Yeah, so, so they, they sell their cattle to get guns to go steal cattle but they're stealing lots of cattle from these farming communities so is it is it almost like a is it in part like almost a symbolic thing about like welcoming people back into the because like they're taking cows so if they just needed a cow but i think that's just just... that they don't need just one cow you know they need all the cows like they need as much as they can they had a certain like the number of cows that they had was like low and so if they're able to exchange the cows they have for guns and they can go to get like large amounts of cows they have more power that's how it is yeah pretty much because it's a farming community so once they have these you know large herds of cows they can you know i'm sure they share it with their families they could you know sell it they could 
you know, get the other resources that the cow provides. Um, so it's interesting because it's like a community within a community. So the government is like, don't steal them. We'll just provide you with the cattle that you need. Yeah. If you give us the guns and are not threatening violence to steal other people's. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. I mean, that's like there's people that use money that they have to buy guns so that they can go and rob people. And like that we have money exchanges for guns in some cities, you know, like we'll give you this much if you give us your guns. So, yeah, I guess that makes sense. It's like the root is people are they don't have as much as they feel they need. Mm hmm. Yeah, that sounds about right. I mean, they're saying that these attacks are rooted at competition over resources. So if they feel that they have no other way to get it, they're just going to take it from one another. It's like every man for himself, you know? So this like level of inequality just like never ends because it's just, it's down to the bare bone minimums where if I take your resources to make my family better, it almost makes people want to go and start to do this so they can get their stuff back. So it's like a never ending cycle of violence. Hmm. I was surprised with the, the, I mean, I don't know very much about how much guns cost, but a thousand bucks for an AK-40, which I, is kind of an outdated gun at this point. Um, yeah. The, uh, it just makes me curious about how what the, the gun laws are there, because if they just had the American style, like, shit, that place, like, that would not be very good, you know, like no. affordable guns yes. is just like i mean people go to walmart and buy guns every day you know so that's that's you know we're, we're talking about two completely different situations when it comes to the importance of guns and how they're being used um well maybe we are not actually but i think the context is it's different because people are buying guns here for you know protection some for leisure some just because they can you know here this is like if I don't do this, my family's going to die. Yeah. Like, I'm I kind of have no choice, you know? I, I'm just saying that, like, if the rest of the world took the, uh, like, our country's approach to to how we don't regulate guns, it, it, I mean, I don't know what I'm talking about, but I just feel, feel like... No, I know. It's, it's kind of hard and difficult like, to understand. Like, there would just be a lot more guns, you know, and yeah. it would be much worse. This is making me think of, I started watching on Netflix this series about the business of drugs. And mm -hmm. they're talking, they were talking about how like there's farmers, for example, who grow coca leaves and they're using the coca leaves obviously to help make cocaine or like there's these groups of people that are taking, uh, extracting that wealth from the farmers to make cocaine, but the government is trying to do stuff like convince them to grow coffee instead and like do these other things instead of working with the drug trade. But the difference in the amount of money is so stark and the difficulty of like working with the other crops is so much higher mm -hmm. that it doesn't make sense for the farmer to do the legal thing, you know? And I, I feel like there's a lot of situations where it seems simple to say, well, why grow cocaine or why grow coca leaves to make cocaine when you can just grow a legitimate crop and sell it legitimately, but you have to be talking with the actual community, like the actual people on the ground living that life 
because yeah. it's never as simple mm-hmm. as just, well, why don't you just do, because if it were like that, we wouldn't be having the conversation, you know, like they're not doing it because they don't know, you know, like they're doing what they're doing because it makes sense for their survival. Like you have to figure out some way to work with them to get them what they need to survive and to thrive instead of having like a punitive thing. So I guess if the base of it is they need more cows, if you're giving them the cows, that sounds good to me. Yeah, solve the problem. I mean, it's it's definitely an approach, you know, to consider. I I hope that they get something from it. I, I don't know if people would do it just for, you know, two cows when they're getting whole herds of them. But, you know, like you were saying, maybe some people want to get out of the crime life and not be, you know, living in that sort of anxiety that they may have developed over the years or, you know, it's very dangerous, I'm sure, uh, for their families as well to be caught up in that. Um, so have Jasmine, what you just said a moment ago made me wonder, have either of you ever had jobs that you in industries you you don't actually align with or don't actually support that much? Yes, I have. Yeah. I mean, I guess I feel like that's pretty much any job unless you work for yourself <laughs> like yeah, I've, I've, you know it's like when you have to work to live like but I haven't been in something where it was super extreme like where I was involved in something where there was violence but I've definitely had jobs where I didn't agree with what the decision makers like way up higher than me did yeah Teresa what's your example can you talk about it or um, no I really can't talk about it um that's yeah, right. I, I um, can, but I can, I can say that, you know, I think when I started in that position, it was like, um, I just needed a job. I was kind of like in, in the bottom level. So it didn't really matter to me as much. But as I moved through the organization and moved into the leadership, I got a better understanding of the underlying point, if you will. And it just sometimes made me sick to my stomach to be a part of it. It's not anything violent or anything crazy like that. Um, but you know, it shows as something positive, but the people who run the organization, they have other intentions, you know? So it's really difficult because it's one of those things where I was in a good space at the organization where, you know, I'm helping and I'm, I'm actually trying to be good in the position I had, but the ultimate goal of it was just really conflictual. And, um, yeah, it's difficult. It's difficult to remember that you're one of the good guys. Yeah. Why do you ask, Matt? Did you? Um, well, I've just kind of been thinking about it last week and before. Um, we sometimes talk about homelessness and, and the job I have working at a women's shelter for uh, people who are homeless. And it's, it's, uh, it, it's, it's hard because there's, it, there's some practices and some things that I just I don't agree with, but also when you're just a small part of that thing, you don't really have the power or experience. <laughs> you know, like it's also not. It'd be really pompous if if I thought I could fix things because people are have been working there for, or you know, dedicate their lives to it and everything. But um, but I've been just kind of been thinking about that also, and I've always kind of had the thought because my dad works in health insurance. And I've always just kind of felt weird about like shit, like my family's money comes from something that I, I think is exploitive and is a massive um, cause of, of pain 
uh, unnecessarily. And so I kind of live in that space <laughs> in some ways. Yeah. It's challenging. Yeah, that's very true, especially like there's been a lot of um, like even the spokesperson from the story that I'm talking about. She's a part of the housing authority, which runs this program for affordable housing. Yet the rules and regulations of the organization are such that it keeps it makes it possible for there to be 40,000 people waiting in line for years for an apartment. So there's a lot of things where, like, from the outside looking in, you read the mission statement, and it sounds good. Yeah. But then when you look at, like, what you actually do, like, I think we talked to, like, what Matt was saying, like, how you have, oh, like, we house the homeless, but they make it so strict where it's, like, you do one little thing outside of the rules, and then you can be put out, like... You know, there's, a, there's so many things like that. Like, once you step into, like, it's like a nonprofit or like once an entity gets big enough, it's almost like it automatically starts to go towards some form of conservative, like keeping certain like levels between people. Like it's, it's hard. Yeah. Well, I mean, so much, we live in a capitalist world or at least country. And I know that's, I'm painting things with a broad brush, but I do think that one things are commodified and many things can be commodified and there's no problem with that but when certain necessities are it's just at a certain point you can't save things unless we address like the massively difficult thing that i don't think we will be able to in our lifetime which is uh saving health and housing uh from capitalism yeah i mean how like was what was it about was it the violence of the cow thieves made you think about this um no it was well, i mean that's related but it was something you said about the the farmers who are working in a drug industry but obviously they're they're just growing crops right like they're participating but it's like how you you know i don't think any sane person would fault them but we've in a lot of ways people um you know, are forced to uh, participate in uh, industries that they don't want to. And, you know. Right, yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, we have one more final story for the good news. Yay. So it's just a quick uh, story I heard about just the other day. Uh, Colin Kaepernick has an organization called the Know Your Rights Campaign. Uh, He created it a few years ago. Uh, with the mission of helping to mobilize black and brown communities. Um, so he's in the news because his organization donated $1.75 million to important causes in this recent week. Um, his organization will give of that 800000 toward COVID-19 relief for those affected by the pandemic, as well as $450,000 in grants that will assist essential living costs and rent relief in a variety of cities across the U.S., um, additionally, the group is providing help during the ongoing social justice protests, and part of this donation includes 500000 to the National Lawyers Guild to provide legal defense for people arrested while protesting the killing of George Floyd. Mm. So this is just like a great story. I mean, there's something about Kaepernick and that I've always admired because, you know, when celebrities use their celebrity um, in ways that really challenge what it means to be celebrity um it really kind of like sets the stage for us you know it almost makes us wonder like uh 
why isn't more people doing this? We don't really hear a lot of stories about some of the work that celebrities do. You know, you hear the traditional ones, but Kaepernick, you know, he he started a nonviolent protest that ended his career in 2016, and he's been working with this organization even before that. Um, the mission of this organization is to advance the liberation and well-being of black and brown communities. So as you can see, they're not just, you know, doing the traditional, there's nothing wrong with traditional giving, but I feel like it's very anchored in actually helping people who need it. It's not one of those um, donations that you don't really see the trickle down effects. You don't really see where it's going. Um, it just seems that this organization is really doing great work and Kaepernick has really used his entire life to kind of dedicate to doing good work. Ava DuVernay is now producing uh, the story of his life in a documentary. Ah. <laughs> oh, she's great at docs. <laughs> I know. I can't wait to see it, but I just, you know, I wanted to just bring this to the light. Some good news to, to see something happening uh, from Kaepernick. And uh, yeah, I just thought that was something cool to share. That's beautiful. Yeah, why not? Um, and it says that the money will go to bail funds in cities of Atlanta, Detroit, and Miami specifically. Yeah. So I think they should go to fuck bail funds. That shit's outrageous. <laughs> right? Exactly. But, you know, that that's where the real help is needed, you know? So uh, definitely hats off to Kaepernick and his crew at the Know Your Rights campaign. Yeah. All righty, guys. Well, that's it for this week's Objection to the Rule. Thank you, everyone, for listening um, and keeping our show going. We really appreciate your support. Uh, you can find older episodes on the Radio Free Brooklyn website or anywhere else you can find Apple iTunes podcast. Uh, stay locked in to the channel for more independent media. Brooklyn media. There we go. Yeah. <laughs> We're going to sign off and say goodbye. You guys want to say goodbye? Goodbye. Goodbye. <laughs> Have we a good see rest you. of your Sunday. Peace. <laughs> Bye. Peace.